Welcome to the Comfortable in Chaos Podcast. Podcast. Strangle your demons and let's go. Y'all need Jesus! in chaos podcast i am your host eric helberg we're like einstein over here we have no special talent believe me we don't we're just passionately curious passionately curious about all things pertaining to men and we are going to take that same passion and extol it into the lives of our spouses and our children Because we want to be curious about everything and not just simply this world around us. I wanted to start off because we have an amazing interview today. But I wanted to give a shout out to my friend's show. And those friends are Jomel and Luce. Their show is on Spotify. It is called Quintong America. It is every Sunday at 10 a.m. It is all for the Filipino community, and we have Filipino supporters. We know there's some badass Filipinos ready to whoop our ass with reeds and sticks over there. But I'm saying, hey, cool down, bro. There's a time and place for all of that. But even better, great Filipinos have come over here and made our country what it is today. So should you ever want to check them out, of course, you do need to know Tagalog. I will simply let you know that it is a magandang talakayan, a good discussion. One more pause, and that is for Mondo Lava, M-A-N-D-O-L-A-D-E, the best michilada mix on the planet. You choose your beer. Dos Equis is cool. Modelo is cool. He's got the mix to spice up your life. You can check him out. Armando Acosta. On Facebook, we call him Mandango, Dango, uh, Armando, the whole nine yards. Mondo Lava, Michi Lava Mix. Now for today, guys, we've got my buddy and my wife's brother on here, better known as Jefe, meaning Chief Jefe Joe Evans. Now, Hefe hails from Orlando, more specifically Pine Hills, and we're about to jump into all that mix. But he is our current chairman of the Republican Party here in Jefferson County, Texas. And, of course, he does an inordinate amount of work with, really, let's just say disserved kids, or they wouldn't be locked up in the first place. That's his heart. He understands it. He's also on our school board here in town. So without further ado, I bring you Hefe Joe. All right, man. We're all situated. I have Hefe Joe right here at my 9 o'clock. Now, Hefe Joe, while I get this cigar I'm smoking going, You're originally from Orlando, more specifically, Pine Hills, and I want you to start off and tell us a little bit about that. 
All right. You want me to tell you about Orlando, Pine Hills, or what? All of it? All the above. Yeah. So I was born in Orlando, Florida, like you said. Um, I didn't... I, when I was born, I lived in another neighborhood in, uh, off of a street called Ivy Lane, which is... Uh, Malibu was the name of that neighborhood. Um, pretty tough, you know, pretty tough little, little area, you know. Um, but, you know, that's that's where I was born pretty much and probably around early elementary school uh my parents divorced my dad stayed in the ivy lane area and i moved over to pine hills and so um that's where you know i pretty much grew up made a lot of friends um and even back then i didn't make a lot of enemies thank god but i but i but i did have a lot of friends um, and once again, Pine Hills at the time, it wasn't as, as rough as Ivy Lane, but it was getting there. And of course, by the time I left in like 98, it was it was full fledged. Uh, Welcome to the jungle. Hmm. Um, you okay. know, um, I grew up in the 90s as far as my, you know, preteens and teens. And, you know, crack cocaine was was the epidemic. And um, it, it took a lot of my friends and family and their families down, you know, down to the, you know, it rattled them down to the core, um, destroyed families, destroyed lives. And um, I didn't want to leave Orlando or Pine Hills, but my mother, she, she wanted me out because she she worked in the community. She was an activist. And so she saw firsthand um, the, the, the negativity and the destruction that was taking place in our neighborhoods, and she wanted me away from it. So... You know, um, she made sure I moved to Tallahassee to go to college. And I begged to stay home, but she said, no, you have to leave. And it was a blessing, too, because, like, the summer I left, my friends immediately started dying and going to prison. And it was like every six months or less, I would get a call or, at the time, emails wouldn't be. You would get a letter in the mail saying that someone had been shot, someone had, you know, uh, robbed something and got caught and going to prison. And um, it was just... um, a rough area, poverty-stricken, and like I said, a horrible drug epidemic that for a young man, um, was such a bad situation, but we glorified it, and it was what we thought was right as far as, you know, the drug culture and selling drugs. You know, you you know, you know, had, I, I had good parents too, by the way, and, you, you know, you had preachers and you had coaches, but they were no match for those dope boys pulling up in those Cadillacs. No match for the allure of the streets no, and what it could offer you. No match for it. It was, it was like I said, we, we glorified it, we glamorized it, and we saw it. Those guys were up close and personal. And still to this day, you know, um, I, I, I don't, I, I don't want to seem critical of the clergy or, you know, or pastors, but um, they, they still don't do a good job of getting their message out to our youth. But the, but the hustlers... They're clear, they're present, they're showing up, they got the nice clothes on, they got the jewels, and they got the girls. And that's who we see. You know, I only saw one politician as a youth, and he was a mayor of a small town called Eatonville, Florida, which is just, just um, I guess, east of Orlando, and uh, like maybe, maybe northeast of Orlando, small, historically black city. Mm-hmm. And Mayor Grant was the mayor of that city, but he was also... Uh, he he ran the youth center in Orlando, and so I would see him 
couple times a week he'd be in a nice suit. You know, he was a he was a ironically, he was a smaller guy, but at the time he seemed like a huge guy, like he was bigger than life. And he was the only guy that I really knew who was doing something really positive that I can look at and say I want to be that. So that's probably one of the biggest reasons I'm involved in politics today because of seeing that guy. So I just look back and say, man, if I would have saw more guys like that and there were more guys like that in my neighborhood, more of my friends would have probably been attracted to, you know, politics or activism or, or things like that. But instead, you know, um, we, 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 saw, we saw the dope boys. Okay. You know. Well, yeah, that's a great segue right there because we mentioned the allure of the streets. And without some type of external grounding, I don't think there's any pastor. I don't think there's any politician that can drop on one of those corners in Pine Hills and offer something better, at least in a worldly package, that isn't going to seem better to the boys on the streets. They've got the brothers. They can belong. They can take place in everything they've ever thought about or seen. Before that, they can have. So that's a, uh, that's a pretty strong cocktail. Yes, sir. All right. Well, noting that, that's the backstory. That's the backstory. And I always say it on this show, there's no substitute for experience. That's your experience. That's what makes you unique in your position. Now, your neighborhood, what was it primarily made of? Was it black, Mexican? What was it? Well, my neighborhood was primarily black, and then we didn't have very many Mexicans at the time in Florida, but we did have Puerto Ricans and Cubans, Jamaicans, Haitians, a couple Vietnamese friends I had. Um, So it was a melting pot in, in that regard, at least while I was living there. Uh, now it's primarily, you know, African American, uh, Haitian, Jamaican, uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, Caribbean influence um, in Pine Hills and throughout Orlando. Okay. Well, that being said, you and I, we're not going to talk about any names. We had dinner the other night. Mm hmm. And when we had dinner the other night, we had a group with us, and we were talking a little bit of politics, obviously. Mm -hmm. My wife's an elected official. You lead the Republican Party here. But I heard someone say, and I want to know why this is, Joe. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do people, and I'm making a statement. You tell me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. Do people associate the Democratic Party primarily with all the groups you just told me about? Or do they associate that with the Republican Party, and why? Well, no, that's it's ironic that you asked that because no, you you associate those ethnic groups with the Democrat Party. Even if you're within those ethnic groups, you associate yourself with the Democrat Party. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why. You know, one one reason is, you know, if you look back in recent history, Obama. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. But if you look back. Um, Probably coming out of the civil rights era, mm-hmm. um, the Democrats seemed to have a message that was more palatable for, for, for black folks. And the notion of receiving a hand up was, was you know, perpetuated by the Democrats for a long time. But I think that's what, what, what really put our community in bad shape. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, before we ask the next question... 
Take a sip of your drink. Right. Yeah. And I'm going to take a puff of this stogie. Inhale. Exhale. Question two. All right. With that backdrop, Joe, how in the world then, Hefe, did you come out of there? And how in the world did you end up the Republican leader of our entire area of Texas? Well, um, first, you know, I look back at my mom and her activist spirit. She was she was she wasn't a politician, but she was very active politically. And so she never preached partisan politics. So that wasn't her thing. Her thing was was we want to support groups and elected officials who support all people. So I was never, you know, you know, pegged as tied. or tied yeah. you know, to to a certain party. And then I when I when I, by the time I got into college and I started voting my own, I didn't like Al Gore. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so I wasn't gonna vote for him. And and so I voted for for I remember voting for George Bush mm-hmm. um, in that election, the one that they say he kind of stole in Florida. He um, may have, ironically, you know, ironically he may have, but but I was in Florida at the time in Tallahassee in college, yeah. and so that was my first introduction to voting for a Republican office holder. Mm-hmm. Um, and so fast forward about maybe twenty years. And now I'm here in Beaumont, Texas. And when I moved to Beaumont in 06, I didn't, uh, I, I was too new and had too young of a family. And I had pretty much put politics and activism on the back burner. Okay. So after being here for probably four years, three, four years, maybe five years, I said, I want to get back active and I want to get back involved. It was a passion that I had always had. And so I wanted to get so so strangely enough, you know, I went to the Democrats. Really? Really. Right here in Jefferson County. I went to the I, I knew some guys that were running for judge. I had been working down at the courthouse. And, you know, you feel like I'm black. That's what the black folks do. So I go over and I start meeting with the Democrats. Huh. But but really soon I noticed two things. Okay. The messaging didn't resonate, and then I saw the, the 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 split racial divide in that party that the Republicans had been accused of for forever. Okay, and I saw it in the Democrat Party. I saw white Democrats over here, black Democrats over here. I saw black Democrat candidates who didn't get a fair shake. Mm-hmm. They didn't get the money. They didn't get the. They didn't get all those things that those white candidates received. But they they still fought hard and they worked hard, but they just didn't get, you know, it was just a split. And so I said, you know, I, I didn't like the way that felt. I didn't like the messaging. Um, I felt that the Democrat Party was responsible for um, some of the societal ills, especially those locally, mm-hmm. um, because they had been in control since Reconstruction. So I said, you know, we can't blame this anymore on Republicans. So I called my sister-in-law. Who is a Republican? Who is a Republican, of course? Mm-hmm. And she said, and she she would always give me a hard time. She says, you know, I like Obama. I love him. I think he's, a, you know, he could have done great things for the country, but he didn't. And at that time, I was over Obama, too. I felt like he did more of a disservice to our communities than a service. And so I just wanted to change. And so I asked, I said, is there a Republican party in Jefferson County? She said, yeah, it's very small. 
And she introduced me. Well, she gave me the number from the chairman at the time. His name was Billy Oliver. Okay. And so this was probably about 7, 30, 8 o'clock one night. So I just said, I'm going to call Billy. I called Billy, and he says, come on down. I'm at headquarters right now. Headquarters is over on Feeling. And so I go down, and I walk in the door, and he was like, man, I, I've been praying for a guy like you. And I was like, get out of here. He was like, no, seriously. He was like, I was praying for a young black man to walk into this door to lead this party to the next level. And I was like, whatever, well, man, you know. But he was serious, and immediately he started to tutor me. You know, he put me in some really good positions. You know, I became a precinct chair. Eventually, I was executive director, served as vice chair. And he, he taught me a lot, and he gave me an opportunity to learn. And what I liked about it was people, for the most part, were, were fair and kind to me. And I saw the Republican Party on ground one, you know, the ground floor, first floor. Yep. And so I said to myself, I've always prided myself as a guy who likes to get in on the ground floor to watch this thing build to the skyscraper that it can be. Mm-hmm. And so I, I started working at that point, and, you know, pretty quickly, I became Joe the Republican. Everybody knew me that way because <laughs> cause there, there weren't many Republicans, and there damn sure weren't any black Republicans. Right. Okay. So, I, you know, I started getting active, and I started taking a lot of heat for it. I started getting called a lot of names. Um, I've been called Uncle Tom. I've been called the Social Experiment. I've been told that I sold my soul to the Republican Party just so they could have a black face to um, give them credibility in the black community. But, you know, none of that's the case. I just felt strongly about um, the views that were held by the Republican Party. And I wanted black people to know that they had options, that you didn't have to self-segregate or herd yourself into a category that you have options and you may or may not want to vote or, or, or participate as a Republican, but you mm-hmm. have options. And so always know you have options. It's not just a one-sided thing. Okay. And so that's kind of how I got started um, in the Republican Party. So kind of on the ground floor. That's a hell of a story, Hefe. Okay, let me think about this then. You had, and let's go back to President Obama. Sure. President Obama Extremely articulate, very learned guy. Mm -hmm. I think he's probably a brilliant guy. But I've done some episodes on here. I don't give a damn who you are. If you're seeking higher office, and I call federal office the show, kind of like baseball. That's the show, prime time. So if you're going to make it to prime time, when you were in single A ball, double A ball, triple A ball, shouldn't you have been a good player? You should have. And what I never understood, because I did this whole thing on Nancy Pelosi, and people have already heard me talk about And by the way, I do think President Bush stole that election. I think it was down in Broward County and some others. That's why he had 30 damn lawyers and Secretary of State Jim Baker over there. The fix was in. Maybe Al Gore did win. I don't know. Right. But what I never understood about President Obama was... We had the global war on terror going at that time, Mm -hmm. and they were still killing all during his presidency. More people annually in Chicago, I'm talking murder, Mm -hmm. and I'm talking black-on-black crime, direct murder by the thousands every year, then we lost the entirety of the Iraq war. Right. So how could you be prime-timed and primed up for leadership if where you are purportedly from is in total hell. Right. 
That's one thing that I never understood. Brilliant guy, but I don't understand how anyone can get a pass like that. Mm-hmm. Now, on the next note, what I was thinking was that, you know what, you can look, and I mean, man, I think he was the most polarizing president ever. You either loved him or you hated him. You can look at Trump. I think probably right now President Biden and the Democratic Party is probably doing the same thing. Right. Hell, he just had a press conference, and even though him and his family, primarily when he was vice president, have been cutting deals with China, he just called Xi Jinping a dictator, and I saw Secretary Anthony Blinken just wince. He was beside himself because he had just finished courting his buddy, but now he's a dictator. Right. So that's one thing. But what I think is important is we can't look at those guys. We can look at Bush 1, Bush 2. I've talked about both those dudes. We can look at Clinton. I don't think you can make a difference there unless you finally get there. But I think what you can do in your own community, and this is what you did, is you're like, irrespective of who's there because they all look foolish, Mm -hmm. I can change the way that the feds have to interact with my community by giving it credibility and enacting things right here where we live that make a difference for us. And no different if we're back in Pine Hills, you walk up on someone, you respect that dude, you're going to deal with him a lot different. And you certainly can't strong arm his ass. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Okay. Well, on that too, are we attracting the best candidates to politics? And tell me how you can tell with all your street experience Who's a huckster and who isn't? Well, I, who's I legit? I don't think we're attracting the, the best. Right. I, I think that because we've made this thing um, revolve around money, mm-hmm. you you shrink the pool of competent people who are passionate and and have a heart for it. I think because people are afraid to be destroyed um, from a, from a, you know, if you're a businessman or if you're a working person, you don't, you may not want your, your background thrown into mm-hmm. the mainstream so that people can criticize you and scrutinize you. Right. So that scares a lot of people off. And then I think that young people continue to walk away from politics, which is also dangerous because, you know, when you don't get involved in politics and you don't run for office, you, you end up being ruled or governed by people who are ultimately inferior to you. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, and when I say that, I mean in, in wisdom and education, you, 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 you deal with the guy who is confident enough in themselves to think that they could versus the guy who's educated, um, outgoing, and a real people person. That guy never runs for office because they're scared of the scrutiny, whereas the guy that's arrogant, probably not such a good person, and doesn't mind um, trickery or mm-hmm. manipulation, those are the guys who win. And so they take that with them into office, the trickery, the manipulation, um, and it becomes a, a sideshow, you know what I mean? And yeah. the people become the audience and, you know, um, they also become victimized, in my opinion, by a lot of these elected officials because you don't have anyone really working for you or being your voice. You know, you have a person that's basically there to serve themselves or serve the individual who propped them up to run for that seat. 
Ah. So you get puppets is basically what you get. Okay. Okay, Hefe, you said something in your last answer. It caught my attention. You mentioned the voice of the people. And that's cliche here in America. Hell, it's, mm -hmm. it's cliche where we live, and it's cliche for the whole country. But who truly goes out? I don't think anyone understands if you are a candidate running for elected office, no matter what it is, right. how much time, effort, and concern – if that truly is your intention to discern the voice of the people, that requires relationships. Mm -hmm. And if you don't actually go out and do that for the reasons I just described, then you're asking people to simply vote for an image or maybe someone else's impression. I don't think there are many candidates out there that will actually go and find out about people and what it is that they are looking to have changed and or to take part in because it's a hell of an arduous task. Right. And, but that is the only way. Mm -hmm. That is the only way to find out what people really want. Right, And right. that's aspect one. But then staying true and delivering it, that's a hellified thing in and of itself too. That's true. That's true. Um, You know, when it comes to... Well, let me back up. Uh -huh. When it comes to being with the people and of the people, once again, you don't always get a Joe Evans. So, you know, I came up in a, in a pretty... Half a Joe. <laughs> and I, I appreciate that name. I love it, too. So thanks for that. But, you know, I came up... My, remember, my mom was an activist, too. She was an activist in heart, soul, and spirit. So she was an activist. She, we fed the homeless. We registered people to vote. We did... Food drives, clothing drives. Every weekend, my mom and I were doing something. And she would bring my friends along. And this is what we did every weekend. Um, and so she taught me the nature of being of the people. Like truly of the people. Right. Down on the ground, face to face, arm to arm, hand to hand with people. Real people. Real like humans. You know, the human element. You know what I mean? So that made me comfortable in my skin and... Um, you know, you ever seen a crackhead? That's eternal fire. You know, you understand uh, the anguish that that person goes through, what their family goes through. And so you develop this empathy for people because you see them at their worst and you see them driven or remotely controlled by something that's beyond their control. Right. And so... You know, you see them homeless. You see them disease-ridden because of the the addiction that's taken them to places and made them do things that they ordinarily wouldn't have done. And so, you know, you you have that aspect. And then when you lose cousins to gang violence and and uh, you know gun violence, and you lose friends to prison and the penal system. You understand really quick that, you know, these are real people with real problems that due to poverty, substance abuse, or just, you know, environmental elements, they weren't able to to get past. And so you say, you know, how could two, my cousin just call them two, how mm -hmm. could two have overcome the things that ultimately led to his death? Right. Um, 
And it was, did he have a positive role model? Not his mom or his dad, who were good people, but who did he have positive when he went to juvenile detention center at 12 or 13 or 14 years old to right. tell him, man, you can change your life. It doesn't have to be this way, you know? Um, who did I have as a juvenile delinquent to tell me you can change your life, you don't have to be like this? Now, I was blessed enough, like I said, to have good parents, but sometimes your parents can't deliver that message, especially when what you see out your window is is, is what is much more attractive. So, you know, that's what I try to make sure that I am. I'm that person who, when I see a young man down in his luck and he's committed a crime or something, I can say, listen, it doesn't end here. It doesn't have to end here. And the way you're growing up is garbage. There's another way. Yeah. You know, so I didn't learn until I was, this sounds crazy, 21, 22 years old at the way I was raised and what I grew up around and within. Bullshit, for lack of a better term. It was garbage. You know, it was, it was, you know, follow, it was the blind leading the blind. You know, it was nobody telling me to do stuff different. When I got close to college age and people saw my potential, my brother and my cousins, they they would then say, get off the corner. This isn't for you. But by that time, you're waist deep in it, you know. So how do you wade back out of those waters that you've waded so deep into? So I try to make sure that I'm a constant voice um, to and for those young young people who they may be one step away. They just need to know that they can do it and they have to see somebody you know, you have to see it. And when you see it, you know, it makes it a lot more, well, it makes the thought of, 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 of obtaining that a lot clearer. You know, you can, you can see it now. So you see Mr. Joe, you know, I could take, I come in there with Air Jordans on, jerseys, chains, but you may see me tomorrow with a suit on. You're talking when you work at our juvenile right, detention center. Right, yeah. right. So, and then on the flip side, they understand and they can feel it. Yeah. You know, they can feel who you are and what you are. And so they open up to you. And by them opening up to you, you now have this back and forth, kind of like the ocean. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to be some lake or some pond that's stagnant with mosquitoes and algae growing. You want to be the ocean. <laughs> you know, you want to yeah. be coming and going. And you want that flow to be, you know, a real flow. And uh, if you can get that thing flowing the way it's supposed to be flowing, and all of a sudden you can cleanse yeah. the mind and the soul. You can let things go, but now guess what? Things can come back in, you know? That's true. If you're not giving anything, wow, you're not going to receive anything. So if your life is all about taking, then you're basically stagnant. And you're going to grow algae and the mosquitoes and all that stuff, and it's going to be just yucky. But if you can have this flow of giving and taking and giving and taking and trying to give more than you take, Mm-hmm. Just like the tide, it never stops going right or wrong. It mm-hmm. always comes in and it goes back out. And usually it'll wash the bad stuff away and it brings, you know. So you have to have that type of concept or philosophy about life. And you can't forget where you came from, you know. You you can't, you know. Um, that's what I was looking for yeah. was, and that's why those youngsters respect you because yeah, yeah. it goes back to similar experience. You're telling them the truth. Mm-hmm. You're telling them how you were caught up. Mm-hmm. You embraced what attracted them. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. But now you see where you're at because that is the result of staying there. Mm-hmm. And we can do something else. Mm-hmm. So that's what I think. That's on one hand. 
Right. That's what I think when we're talking about this whole political landscape is that I don't care which side you're on. I think people want authenticity and truth. Right. Do you believe at this point which party is doing a better job of demonstrating that? And do you see more African-Americans coming to the Republican Party? I do. But it's it's a, it's a slow moving train, but a train nevertheless. You know, it's still a locomotive, but it's just now, it's just not coming out of the station. So it's a slow moving train, and it's also a train that is, um, it's not a ride for the faint at heart. You know what I mean? I tell people all the time not to get biblical, but. Politics needs to be a Christ-like undertaking, meaning that if you're not ready to take a beating for what you believe in, then there's no need to get involved. So It's sacrificial. It's sacrificial. So for a lot of black folks, I think you'll see them start to vote Republican quietly before you see outright activism and participation okay. and promotion. So you'll see a lot more black people voting for candidates like Roxanne, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Roxanne is very palatable to, to black people. She's Hispanic. Mm-hmm. She's real. And she's, you know, she's got some 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 zest to her, some pop to her, some, oh, yeah. some fire to her. So that means you're not a pushover, you're not a coward, but you're you're also real and you're approachable. Right. And so yeah, tell me the truth. Tell me the tell me the hard truth, and I can live with that. Don't look me in my eyes and lie to me because you think it's what I want or need to hear. Because I need to hear the truth. And guess what? Sometimes that's the start. It's just giving people the truth. They may not like it, but man, it's a lot better than when someone lies to you or massages you or just pretends just to see a smile on your face mm-hmm. and say I'll support you. No, you got to tell people the hard truth sometimes. Yeah, like the the the, the men, I, the young men and grown men that I mentor, I tell them sometimes, you know, this is gonna end one of two ways, man. You die in a pool of your own blood in the neighborhood that you grew up in, or you go to prison for the rest of your life. Yep, and you're you're a shell of who you are when you come back home. And so, nobody told me that. <laughs> Seriously, I had to see it with my own eyes. But I think if people got real with me and said you're gonna die in this neighborhood that you claim to love at the hands of probably someone who claimed to love you or, you know, just, so I think it's, it's the hard truths that we have to tell people. So when it comes to politics, the answer is no sometimes. Yeah. Can you help me out in this? No, I cannot. Mm-hmm. And they said, why can't you? Because it's not, it doesn't work that way. Right. I want to, if you give me time, I'll try to, let me look into it for you. Help me make the change too, you know, but, I'm not going to tell you, yeah, I'll get it done for you just to see you smile or write me a check or go vote for me. You know, what I tell you may discourage you or turn you off initially, but when you think about it, it's what you needed to hear to not be fooled or manipulated or suckered into something that you didn't want to be suckered into. Got it. Okay. Well, I tell you what, this has been, and I think we need to probably do a part two. Yeah, just for the sake of time, we should do a part two. We can do it. And we'll even even go further rangy. Mm-hmm. 
because this has been a fascinating discourse in street-level politics, and that's right. where elections are won. Right. Now, I'm going to leave this interview with Hefe Joe Evans with an important, uh, we're either going to say plug or statement because we have the speaker of the Texas House right here amongst us. He's from our community. Mm -hmm. And evidently there's some dissidents, some opposition, but they're wrong. They are. And I think Speaker Dade Phelan is our guy. Will you elaborate on that? And then we'll close this sucker out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I'll, I'll personalize it, you know. Um, since I've been involved in politics, I, I got really, really active in Dade's first years running for a state representative. Dade Phelan was not state representative or Speaker of the House. Dade Phelan, he was just Dade Phelan. And I worked alongside him. I watched him. He gave me a lot of sound advice and a lot of encouragement. And he always made sure to continue to build me up as a young person, as a young, aspiring public servant. When I lost, he was the first person to call. Um, when, I, when I struggled, he gave great advice. When I didn't see my career in politics elevating, he taught me how to work hard to get appointed to seats. Um, he cared a lot about me as an individual. And he didn't care what race I was. He didn't care about any of that stuff. He cared about the passion he saw inside of me. And he invested in me. And sometimes it was just mere words. But it was helpful. And, you know, his wife does the same work as me. You know, he, he jokes sometimes that during the session, I see his wife more than him. <laughs> but it's yeah. true because we're, we work in the trenches together. And she's defending these young men who have been accused of things. Right. They wouldn't have had representation. She's representing them. And so we're talking about a good person. That's just mm -hmm. on a personal level. Got it. On a political level, never in our lifetimes, if we live in Southeast Texas, will we see another Speaker of the House. And in my opinion, one day the governor of Texas right here from where we are from. Come on. All right. Yeah. So, you know, if you look at the resources that have been diverted back to Southeast Texas because of him and his speakership, when you look at the amount of funding that he's given to organizations that pour into the quality of life, when we talk about the gift of life, the Cancer Society, even the Alzheimer's, the Alzheimer's Association, which I don't. I'm appointed to right. because of Dave telling me, you know, here's some things that you can probably look into. Just all the things that he does for a, for the community. Let's forget about the, the the business and industry that he supports and that he diverts funds to. Let's forget about um, the tireless amount of work that he's done on our for our waterways and for our water systems. Um, you name it, the guy's been a champion for his district and his his region and so if he goes away we get shuffled back into the the deck of the 100 the 250 some odd counties and we probably go to the bottom no, of the man. day yeah you know while he's speaker we get everything we need and want and in, in you know in the long term that helps our communities out mm -hmm. um there was a time when you know a couple years ago when i ran for port commissioners or well, several years ago now i saw i read a statistic that showed that 49 percent 
of African-American males between 18 and 25 are unemployed. True. You know, we can fix that now because we have jobs and resources coming to this area because of some of the hard work that Speaker Feeling has done. Uh, so, you know, I don't want people to ever think that these detractors are on the right side of things because they're not. Right. They're greedy. They're funded by greedy, greedy men. And they will behold they will be beholden to those individuals who write these enormous checks to their campaigns. So um Dave Feely is our guy. We need to support him and um I pray that he's reelected and I pray that everybody can understand how good of a person he is and how uh good of a businessman he is, how good of uh you know, and and uh, just a philanthropist through his family and all the mm-hmm. things that they've done. Um, a constant advocate for children and families. Um, his wife works tirelessly uh, to help children and families. And you, you don't get a better speaker than, than, than Dave Phelan, who's not bought and paid for by big business and corporations and oil men. Well, I think Speaker Phelan has done exactly what he was put in that position to do mm-hmm. represent the populace that put him there and Correct. do it earnestly and to go back to what you just said politics if you were going to do it with pure intentions and a pure heart is sacrificial and the only way that you will ever be sacrificial is if you are willing to get into those trenches whereby your constituents are and help them to get out of them. And that he has done. Hefe Joe, I tell you what, this was the very first interview I've ever done on the Comfortable and Chaos podcast. It's been my pleasure, and we're going to get together again, sir. Thank you. My pleasure, too. It's an honor. Thank you. There it is, man. Interview numero uno is in the books. If you think these messages, since we're about 50 episodes deep in the comfortable and chaos podcast, might help someone that you care about, please share. Help our algorithms, especially on iTunes. Of course, we're on Spotify and iHeart. But let's help tune these distinctions and get people over here because... Our aim is to share. You've heard me say it. We're having a beer at the bar or a cup of coffee, wherever it is. And this is how we talk. We have stories to tell, information to pass on, betterment to garner. Help us in that quest. Thank you for being here for this interview today. Until next time, I bid you bon voyage, my burgeoning flock.